The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, welcome to the Halftime Report. I am Frank calling in for the Judge Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, another big breakout in bond yields, calling to the, into question the state of stocks and if another move higher can happen into year end. Our investment committee is standing by to help break this whole thing down. Joining us for the hour, we got Bryn Talkington. She's remote, but right here at Post 9, Shannon Sakosha, Brenda Vangelo, and Steve Weiss. Let's get a check at the market at noon Eastern time right now. Taking a look at the Dow, Bryn, basically at its highs the day, up about 185 points. But the S&P and the NASDAQ, they're actually hitting new highs as we speak. The S&P up just over three quarters of a percent. The NASDAQ moving higher, above 1% higher right now. Some big moves to the upside in just the past few minutes. But... We're going to kick things off with our chart of the day. Of course, it's the 10-year. The yield ripping higher again right now. Take a look. Uh, it hit above 4.65 earlier in the session. It touched its highest level in nearly 16 years, right now at 4.6. And really, that's where we have to start this conversation, Shannon. Higher yields, but yet we're seeing a bit of a rally in the markets today. How's that even possible? Well, because I think we've already been under so much pressure the last week or so, and um, not to say that the, that that pressure has eased. Because if you think about what we're facing right now, we're facing higher oil prices, higher yields, right. sh potential shutdown, um, and Keep uh, going. <laughs> <laughs> student loan repayments are back. Um, we're in September, which is just a tough time in the marketplace. And so this continued pressure, I think, what you're seeing in today's marketplace is that. You're looking at investors saying, okay, we've experienced some of this pain. Um, we have had a pullback in August and September. Uh, the third quarter is not going to look as strong. Um, but we still are looking at, you know, over the next three months or so, what typically occurs after a tough September. And if you look at the numbers, um, you know, the last three years, we've had a stronger fourth quarter after a weak September. And so there is some historical precedent, I think, for some of the um, optimism or enthusiasm that you're seeing in a few names today. I, I think our view is that coming into this year-end period, uh, the confluence of all of these stressors coming at a time when seasonal weakness is already in and in the market and expected, that's why you're seeing this continued pressure. I think we're going to continue to see boss of, um, we're going to see some oscillation here. We're going to see some rotation. Um, and, you know, at, at the end of the day, I think investors are still trying to figure out what is the right price, what is the right valuation at which I should be investing for 2024. Yeah, also important to note the NASDAQ at 1.1% higher, highest of the day, but also the Russell neck and neck with it, Brenda, right now up over 1%. Generally, small caps are more interest rate sensitive. We're hitting 16-year highs. I mean, make sense of it. Well, I think these uh, small cap has really not participated at all in the rally that we've seen so far this year. And it's really in incredibly cheap. If you're looking for something that's inexpensive relative to other parts of the market, small cap is it. Now, you could say it's cheap for a reason. <laughs> it's because these companies do have to raise capital, whether it's through a secondary offering or through a bond offering or what, what have you. So there is some risk there, but you could also argue it's, it's priced in. So we could be seeing some of that. And I think if we look at how that fourth quarter rally might 
play out, I could see some areas like small cap really starting to act better, especially if we see um, more trends within capital markets, more IPOs coming to market, more M&A activity. That should create a little bit of a valuation floor for some of those industries, particularly if we see some of that action within small cap. So, Brent, I want to make sure we're not leaving you out. Um, one of the things that Shannon was talking about, all this wall of worry type of things, oil also back above 90 bucks a barrel, down right now, down three quarters of a percent, but still uh, three bucks above 90 bucks a barrel. What do you make of the action that we're seeing in the market today, the NASDAQ up over a percent higher despite these higher yields? Markets are really oversold, first of all. So looking at RSI, looking just like looking at all the stats, the market is oversold. The S, if you look at SPY, the 200-day moving average is at 420. We're close to that, right? We're like 430 on SPY. So you've had a really, a really decent sell-off. I think ultimately, though, when, you, when you're thinking about positioning over the next three, six months, you know, I believe that we are now in a structurally different rate environment than we've been in the past 40 years. And so I, I still don't think that that has made its way through the economy and, and potentially multiples because we are a country of credit, whether you look at fiscal, look at corporations, look at individuals. And I think that the only reason that the economy continues to remain strong is the insane amount of fiscal stimulus that we continue to have. But ultimately, I do think that like the Atlanta Fed GDP number, I think it's at 4.9. I just still think that's too high. I think that will continue to come down because anytime you have to transact in the market, whether you're an individual buying a car, no one's buying houses or, or they're buying, no one's buying existing houses, or you're a company having to go to the debt market, the cost of capital is exponentially, okay, exponentially higher than it's been the past 13 years. And so I do think rates matter. And so I think short term, the market's really oversold. You could see a pop here and some opportunity. But I think long term, we're going to continue to struggle with this new paradigm and this new regime of rate, which I do not think is going to go back to the way we were the last 10 years. All right, Steve, agree, disagree. Will the market continue to struggle with this new paradigm? Yeah, I think it will. I mean, what we're seeing today is a blip because you actually saw 10-year yields that were up coming down. So the algo traders, you know, the, the, the ARBs are in there uh, just saying, hey, okay, let's buy it because as Bryn points out on a technical look, short-term technical look, perhaps it is oversold. That, again, is just a blip. Look, here, here's the story. The story is, and it's a really, really simple story. We're at a peak in rates now, and they may go higher. And that's not going to drive an M&A activity. It's going to continue to put a lid on M&A activity because it's much more expensive to make an acquisition when you're putting debt in there. So, so I think that's out the window. Just overall, we've had a delay reaction. You know what it's like? It's like that you know, there's a kid and there's a there's a dish of cookies and they eat the first cookie and then, you know, and then they eat the second cookie and the parent says, hey, don't eat more. You can get a stomachache. They eat the third cookie. What's she talking about? I have no stomachache. Eat four or five. And then stomach starts to gurgle as they're in the car on the way home. And then they get this full-blown stomachache. That's what rates are. So these all market pundits said higher rates don't matter. We're not going going to go into recession. They're wrong. Okay because they've been deluded by the fact that we had so much pent up cash, consumers, and corporations had such great balance sheets 
through the pandemic, you know, the pandemic fire hose, you know, of demand coming in, that's gone. The cash is gone. So now what happens, you've got that stomach ache, okay? And guess what? It's reality. Higher rates do hurt. They hurt markets. They hurt deals. They hurt valuations. And that's just beginning to play out. So I'm, I'm, I wouldn't call myself very bearish in the market. As we'll talk about my changes, I've been reducing exposure. I've been saying I'm very cautious. That remains to be the case. And to me, it's a simple story. Right, we'll get to your moves later in the show. But I think everybody, the consensus here is that the rates are certainly impacting the market. So the question now is, what's really driving yields higher? As we mentioned, the 10-year hitting a 16-year year high. The 30-year actually at a 20 a high from all the way back in 2011. So who else to answer this question? Let's bring in senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. Steve, what's the answer? Well, it's been a rough couple days and months, Frank, in the bond market. You have rising bond yields, falling prices, obviously, all of that pummeling investors, especially those on the long end. But analysts think this run in rates and higher rates has further to go here. Since early July, look at what's happened. 375 to 465. You got to hang around a long time to see a move like that high since 2007 on the 10 year. And at this level, hey, talking about a 5% uh, yield on the 10 year, that's not crazy talk. Bruno Brazina, great strategist of Bank America, says the 10 year could head upwards and could hit 5% as a result of these factors. You got the hawkish Fed and higher neutral rates. Remember, when the Fed took away those cuts uh, at the meeting last week, um, next year, by extension, it also extended quantitative tightening. You've got the U.S. debt downgrade, somewhat better economic fundamentals, and lots more supply than anticipated by the market. Market was really surprised. It is supply that looks to be driving rates most of all. In fact, much of the increase in yields has come with little or no repricing of inflation expectations or even that much better economic data. Brazina from B of A says, get used to it. Higher structural deficits and a higher neutral rate mean the bond market is more like it was before the 08 financial crisis. Prices. Yet higher yields, that was kind of normal to be up near four and a half and five, but also more volatility. All of that means the challenge to the bond market uh, or from the bond market to the stock market could be here to stay. And Frank, I really like the long and variable gastrointestinal lags that Steve Weiss was talking about from cookies. Yeah. Free to adapt that as new indicators, Steve. But Steve, I do have a question for you. Um, you know, we're starting to hear pundits saying, hey, we're seeing somewhat of a steepening yield curve, cherry picking which part of the curve. And they're saying, this is really positive for markets. How can they have it both ways? Those were the same people saying, ignore the yield curve. Yield curves don't matter. Now they're saying, okay, they do matter. So what's your view on that? Is a steepening yield curve enough to support the equity markets? No, I don't think so. But it could be good for things like banks. It's also good to yes. be back in a more normal world, depending upon how we get there, Steve, where short-term money is less expensive than long-term money. Banks can borrow short, lend long. That would be a better structure for the economy than the inverted yield curve we have. And we have made some progress in this regard. And people in that steepening curve, Steve, you may, you may know a few, have made a few bucks, maybe for the wrong reason, because the steepener came around for reasons they weren't exactly anticipating. But it's here now. We were up over 100 basis points wide to the 210s. Now we're down near, I don't know, 50 or 60. I haven't looked at it yet uh, in the last couple hours. All right, well, Steve, it's good to know that cookie metaphor landed with everybody. Shannon has a question for you as well. I don't know if she has a cookie metaphor, Long but Shannon's got a question as well. <laughs> there are a bunch more where those came from. I just want to point that out. So. Steve, I... <laughs> 
You know, one of the things that I think has been a, you know, a constant mantra is this expectation that fiscal spending is going to decline next year. And so we've been talking about that being a, a risk to growth. But also there's a, you know, a two-sided risk to that, that if, if fiscal austerity doesn't emanate from 2024 in an election year, how do you think about that supply pressure over the course of 24 and 25, given that we probably aren't going to see kind of meaningful austerity coming out of in a political cycle next year? I think it's a great question, and I'll tell you what, what, I, what I've heard on this issue, which is, first of all, um, the Treasury should not be in the business of surprising the market. It wasn't so much the issuance, um, although it is now, that the amount of issuance, it was the fact that the market was completely unprepared for it in August. They were thinking over time this fiscal stimulus comes down, that the, the total issuance would be coming down, and it hasn't. And so until the Treasury steps forward, and gets in front of the bond market, gets the bond market to trust it again and its outlook and its projections, then I think you could get a little more stability in the market. I do think there will be some negative uh, GDP impacts from, I wouldn't call it fiscal austerity, I would say less fiscal spending next year compared to this year and the last year. Um, and hopefully that's replaced by a more normal uh, economy than we've had recently. So it could take a couple uh, a tenths of a point off GDP, but I don't expect it to be determinative of economic outcomes. Hey, Steve, I got a question for you as well. I want to bounce some research off you. A lot of notes about higher yields today. This one from Ben Emmons from New Edge Wealth. I'm going to read part of it to you. I thought this was fascinating. He says, in his view, what's more likely to happen is that the 10-year, it moves to 5% or higher, the technical round trip to 2007 highs, and then it could bring all Treasury yields to the same level, presumably around 5%, which makes the yield curve shape entirely flat. You guys were talking about steepening. He's seeing it going flat. And that's the moment the bond market signals high uncertainty in the economy. Agree or disagree? So I think that's a potential outcome. I think more likely. Look, you'd have to talk to folks out there and, and, and even around your table, Frank. But I think... There's a lot of folks that are ready to pounce on these longer-term yields. You don't want to get burned by it just as surely as you don't want to miss it, right? 5% has not been around for a while. There's people who want to jump into that 5%, but they have to feel somewhat secure that they're not going to lose their shirt. I think 5% might be a signal for some of those people who want to come in on that long end to come in, perhaps borrow short, especially if you get some more stability from a sense of what the Fed is going to do. So imagine a world where it's pretty clear the Fed is on hold. You might feel confident borrowing short to buy on the long end, and that could have a positive effect on real yields on, on the long end. I think 5% might be the place that could be a top we can start to think about. And I think the conversation okay. in the stock market is, how much are my stocks worth? What is the right valuation for those stocks in a 45 to 5% long-term 10-year yield world because I don't believe we're going back to the Kansas of 1% and 2% 10-year yields. Our Steve Leesman live from Delivering Alpha. Steve, great to see you as always. Thank you very much. Brent, I want to come over to you. What is your take about these higher yields, the conversation we just had, and what Steve's saying is really driving that move to the upside? Well, I mean, I don't even think we're – I'm looking at the 10-year, the 3-month Treasury right now. And so you still have like 100 basis points of inversion there. So we're not even close to being able to borrow short and lend long, by the way, because you still have a, such a massive inversion. I'll also say that the yield curve, and I'm not in this recession camp. I'm just like data driven, just like looking at history. 
you also you also had really multiple times since the 80s the yield curve actually steepening right before you went into a recession so I just think the tea leaves are too murky or the tea is too murky to say what's going to happen because of what's happening with the yield curve I just think pragmatically and you know Steve and I agree on this pragmatically it's like higher for longer absolutely will embed itself into an economy that's been you know juiced up on zero zero percent rates for you know 13 years and I do think like the M&A out of private equity you know we talked we do a lot of business on the private side you know the cost of capital is very very expensive and that absolutely hurts multiples from a VC side as well as you know going through to the IPOs and so I just still think it's more of a defensive market um, where you just want to have some hedges on what's interesting to me though Frank is that I'm really surprised there's so much leverage on the long part of the bond, I'm really surprised we haven't seen, and maybe it's just happened too quickly, like a risk parity trade, a hedge fund blow up, because they got on the wrong side of this yield move. To me, that would be a decent probability of happening because of so much leverage on the long end. Something we'll continue to watch. We're going to keep this rate discussion going. The move-in rates, really a big focus at the Delivering Alpha Conference that's underway right now here in New York City. We've already heard from a bunch of big power hitters, our own Leslie Picker. She's there following the money for us and joins us now live. Leslie, over to you. Hey, Frank, you're right. I think the word rates was has made its way into every single panel this morning, especially the interplay between rates and equities. And some pretty high-profile investors are skeptical of equities right now as a result. P CPP's chief investment officer, Ed Cass, says that the real rates being persistently high will cause equities to underperform. We're in this amazing period from 2008 to, to 2020 uh, where the best portfolio you could build was just equity-centric, yeah. like just, just belong equity. Right. <laughs> I think it was really an exceptional period for equity where you had low discount rates and, and that led to high growth through increased margins. Right. If you think rates have to be higher persistently because of some of these inflationary forces, and that's the exact opposite. Growth is probably a little bit slower growth than earnings, plus the discount rate is higher. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't seem to me to be a, a very equity-friendly market. TCW's Katie Koch had a similar sentiment about equities as well. It's like 85% of returns are being driven by those seven companies. So we have um, very consolidated leadership. We have valuations that are above historical averages and we have a backdrop that's weakening. Um, and, and I think on a relative basis, just kind of there's the possibility and we'll come on to that later of equity like returns higher up in the capital structure. So I, I would say we're not as excited for equity markets for that reason. Koch says you're, quote, getting paid to be patient right now. Cash has a good return, so her firm is defensively positioned with a philosophy around owning agency mortgage-backed securities or cash or treasury. Uh, treasuries. And there's still a lot ahead here at Delivering Alpha. Don't miss Scott Wapner's interviews with Altimeter's Brad Gerstner and Pershing Square's Bill Ackman. Frank. Leslie Picker, live from Delivering Alpha. Thank you very much. All right, turn our attention now back to the rates. Uh, as, as rates march higher, we're keeping an eye on Apple right now. Shares broke below 170 earlier in the session. Taking a look right now, right now at about 171, almost 172. Um, a lot of broad Apple ownership, Shannon. I'm just going to come to you first. What do you make of this action we're seeing in Apple? There's obviously a lot of macro factors. There's China. There's also that uh, FTC uh, investigation into the, the search. So a lot of things weighing on the stock. I, 
I would say those are um, secondary, I think, to what you're seeing in terms of Apple right now. We experienced um, significant multiple expansion for the Magnificent Seven coming into the, the second half of this year. And one of the challenges now is that a lot of that was led by enthusiasm around AI. And now what we're experiencing is that investors, I think, thought are thoughtfully looking at that space and looking at those companies that can potentially monetize AI into 2024. If you think about what else is happening. I mean, look at the consumer confidence numbers that we got this week. Present expectations, fine. Future expectations, way down from where they were over the past couple of months. And so that speaks to this idea of a weakening consumer, not just here in the United States, but to your point globally. So what's going to drive adoption with, of the, the new 15 Pro, for instance, which is obviously the device that Apple really wants to see pick up an uptake of in, in the holiday season? If we are truly getting into a period where more of the discretionary income is having to be paid towards staples to necessities, we're seeing the reacceleration of food and energy, that doesn't give a really strong outlook for the fourth quarter for Apple. I think most importantly, though, is that this thoughtfulness around what has experienced, what stocks, what companies have experienced meaningful multiple expansion this year, which of those have been justified. And I think Apple's kind of falling to the side because I think that investors are having a hard time justifying the expansion we've seen with the top line growth that has been, fr fr frankly, stagnant for, for several years. All right, so Brenda, you own Apple as well. Um, you know, shares down more than 8% month to date. Um, valuation 27 times forward earnings. Does this higher rate environment, does it change your thought about Apple? I think when we think about Apple, we're really looking company specific and looking at just the maturity of the company and just asking ourselves, you know, can it grow like it did over the last decade? And we keep coming back to the same answer, which is, Probably not, just given this incredible installed base that they have. Certainly there's growth on the services side that they can continue to realize and it's profitable growth. But at the same time, we have to ask ourselves, does the stock deserve the same multiple that NVIDIA has right now, for example? And given the growth prospects, we have to say no, it, it doesn't. It's, in our view, it still deserves to trade at a premium to the broader market, given the quality of the company, the balance sheet, everything else, the installed base. But, you know, we just grapple with the multiple, which I think is more fair now than it was uh, a couple of months ago when it was up at 30 times. Right. Uh, but we've seen multiples come down for all of large cap tech companies, including NVIDIA, because the earnings have, have increased so much uh, in that case. So I think when you're looking at you know, relative dollars, where are they going within the space? Um, I think there are other opportunities uh, where there is more growth. All right, let's stick with tech. Uh, coming over to you, Weiss, you actually trimmed Meta. Shares are up 2.5% right now, though. Yeah. Um Look, it was an outsized position, so it's still one of my large positions. I think even maybe my possibly my large position. I think the stock's very cheap. Uh, there are definitely some things uh, uh, that I don't like about the company. Wait, just to be clear, 23 times forward earnings cheap in your mind? Uh, yeah, I think it's a little cheap in this market. With it, it also goes to your confidence in the predictability of those earnings and the cash flow as well. So I believe it is cheap. Is it compellingly cheap? No. In this market, is it cheap? But as I look at where I want to be in the market, I still want to be in mega cap tech. So it's this and Alphabet, where I think are the most reasonably priced with increasing earnings versus Apple, which has had basically no earnings growth of the last couple of years. Minor, but definitely not support of its valuation. So that's why I do it. I also, though, do, I am short calls on, on Meta, higher 
above the market. I also like Microsoft. You know, Microsoft, they're going to be launching in the first quarter products with the chat GBT. I mean, who's not going to want to sign up for that, right? Why is that not going to increase pricing and margins? So I don't think it's compellingly cheap, but I also think Microsoft, given their growth aspects, is cheap. So, okay. so in other words, the position got too big, it's down to a normal size, a large position, that's where comfortable being. Let's talk about another one of your moves. You actually trimmed Oracle as well. Was that getting outsized as well? I didn't well? trim it. I booted it. So, so, I, so I took a, uh, I'd say, an initial small position, trading position in Oracle after the big dump that it had on a quarter that I thought was a pretty good quarter. Guidance was a little, a little squishy, but I wasn't married to the position, it was a starter position. And given how my view of the market has changed somewhat slightly, that you've got to decide what you want to own, what you want to live with through what I think is going to be a very turbulent downward uh, going market. And that's just not one where I was invested in it enough to want to stay there. All right. Got some more moves here. Brenda, you have a new buy, Palo Alto Networks. You talk about a stock trading at a premium to the market. Looking at this one, 47 times forward earnings. It is trading at a premium, but when we look at where we think dollars are going to be spent um, on the corporate side, this is an area we think is going to be continue to be important. And when we look at the whole space, there have been mixed results uh, from a lot of the companies uh, within the group. But Palo Alto Network stands out in our mind just based on the quality of the management team, the quality of the offering, their ability to navigate this current environment. And we think it's clear that customers are really gravitating towards our platform offering, where they're able to consolidate with one provider really um, and increase efficiency in that way. Uh, so we think the company is poised to continue to do well in this environment. Yeah, Nikesh Rora also has not been shy about saying that Palo Alto is a big leader when it comes to AI and cybersecurity. Uh, coming up next, we got a surge in crude, oil hitting its highest level in over a year, where the committee stands on energy. That's coming up. Halftime back in just two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started.
As you can see, the market's at session highs, even with the 10-year back above 4.6%. Welcome back to halftime. We're focusing on energy now. Oil lower right now after hitting the highest level since August of 2022, and it's helping lift the entire energy space. It's the only positive sector this month. Brent, I'm going to come over to you. You have a lot of energy exposure. Right. I mean, September's been a really interesting month. The s and is down around five. If you look at just the XLE, it's up five. So you have a 10% delta, you know, just in just versus the S&P this month. I think that what you need to understand is while oil has moved up so quickly, you need to have oil stay at, you know, above 80 for a while to actually get that, that oil out of the ground and be able to filter into the revenues of these companies. And so, I mean, I've been pretty consistent about this. This area, I think just like rates are structurally higher, I think 80 is the new 60 and oil will be structurally higher. And so I think that, and also going into the end of the year next year, we have to refill the SPR at some point, that, that would be logical. We still have Saudi, with about 3. I think 3.3 million barrels per day still being taken back from the market. Russia's coming, taking back from the market. And so I think you have these dynamics where OPEC, OPEC Plus, unfortunately, is in the driver's seat, and they have an incentive to keep oil higher. And so I think from a positioning perspective, you know, my favorite way to play it is the, there's an ETF, RSPG. It's an equal weight versus XLE is about 40% Chevron Exxon, so like mega cap. That RSPG is an equal weight, and you get more mid-cap exposure in that space, and it's up around 8% per year, 8% year-to-date. And then companies like Diamondback, you know, are up 15% year to date. So I think that people still, as we talked about last week, a lot of people rent the space and are afraid to own it. I do think over the next few years, investors are going to start to come back and start trying to own this space over a cycle versus just timing it. Brent, I'm going to come over to you. You own Chevron. Um, you know, obviously, Brent's pretty bullish on this space, but we do have to talk about the higher rates. Bring it back to that. Are you concerned about demand destruction? I am concerned about the dynamic that high oil prices brings into the current environment because I think when we look at the global economy, it does represent a risk, not only for consumers, but also central banks that are going to have to grapple with higher oil prices filtering into core inflation eventually. And, and so that, I think, represents a real a problem, in my view, and kind of a fly in the ointment of this uh, great story of, um, of the economy begin, global economy improving. Um, so I do think this represents a risk. Um, certainly, the, the companies in the energy space are really benefiting from incredible cash flows um, right. at current prices right now, but we worry about the impact of the global economy. Yeah, free cash flow is one of the big stories in the energy sector right now. Uh, time now to get to our, our update. We got the headlines with Silvana Hanau. Silvana, over to you. Hey, Frank, the New York Attorney General named Donald Trump on her prospective witness list for the upcoming civil lawsuit trial. The former president is expected to be called to testify along with his children, bankers, accountants, and current and former Trump Organization employees. Trump's defense team has a list of 127 fact witnesses that is expected to be challenged by both the prosecution and the judge. The Hawaiian Electric CEO testified this morning at the first congressional hearing on the Maui wildfires. The company leader defended the company's decision not to de-energize power lines, saying it was not part of the utility's protocol. The decision was made even as Hawaiian Electric was preparing for winds of more than 60 miles per hour that spurred the deadly fire in historic Lahaina. 
and the Senate unanimously passed a new dress code resolution bringing business attire back. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer chose to stop enforcing the unwritten code, and Senator John Fetterman's sweatshirt made headlines. Senators Joe Manchin and Mitt Romney wrote a bipartisan bill requiring men to wear a coat and tie and slacks. There were no specifics on women's business attire. Frank? I'm just going to leave that one there. Silvana, thank you very much. Really <laughs> appreciate it. All right, coming up here on Halftime, the retail trade. Weiss making a big move in the retail space. Plus, we're going to walk you right up to Nike earnings after the bell. Those trades coming up next on Halftime. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, we're back here on Halftime. Stocks hitting session highs in midday trading and Dow component Nike gearing up to report its earnings after the bell today. We also have a big move in the retail space. Back over to Steve Weiss. Tell us why you sold your position in Dick's. Well, uh, you know, based upon what I said before, you probably draw a straight line to it. Consumers under pressure. And while I think Dix is, is uniquely positioned because they are able to keep their niche, so to speak, versus e-commerce, not broadly, but for the most part, because uh, it's an experience, an experience with your kids to go there, experience for adults, right? You can always order sneakers from Nike online, et cetera, but, but there, there's something to go in there. Um, also, seasonally, even though there'll be seasonal compares for the quarters, they're not in their high season anymore because winter's coming. They don't do a big ski business. Uh, but just overall, look, they reported a quarter that disappointed. A lot of that was due to theft, but some others were occasioned by inventory. I do think it's a solid management team. But the stock has not bounced. It's tried to lift a few times. I increased the position after the quarter. And, you know, this is my uh, this is my reminder that greed is not always good because, as you recall, my target is 150. It got to 148 before the quarter. How stupid not to have sold it. So I hate to keep uh, looking at a reminder of my stupidity. I get enough of that when Scott does the show. And so I'm glad you're here today. Um, but. I, I can remind see, you. I didn't see the upside in it. Yeah, well, then, no, actually, I say that jokingly because I don't do stupid things ever, <laughs> ever. But no, seriously, that was stupid right. not selling it. But with consumer under pressure, with stock not lifting, it's just not where I want to be. In these markets, as I said, you got to decide what you're going to stick with and where you want to keep your capital and when the opportunities arise to be able to put capital right. to work. So it's great to have war chest. And I don't mind owning 5% treasuries, by the way. All right, so we keep talking about the consumer being stressed. One thing about Nike, I want to pull it back to that and talk to you guys about the broader retail sector. Um, you know, Nike stock obviously under pressure, but the Jordan brand, its highest end yep. product, actually having a banner year. Uh, according to Jane Holly and Associates, up 30% when it comes to sales growth year over year. That's a higher margin, higher price product. So if the consumer is so stretched, why is that doing? High end is not as stretched. We've seen some weakness in the LVMH, et cetera, but high end and, and, uh, and, and collectors, they're not stretched. They're going to do whatever they can. But broadly, look at CarMax. Used car prices coming down. Stock got crushed yesterday. Do you think that's an isolated incident? No. Let's, let's stick with continue. retail just for a minute. I'm going to come over to you. We're talking about the consumer being stretched. You own TJX, a discount retailer. Um, what's your thought about a discount retailer in this current environment? 
We like TJX because you know there's there's excess inventory in the channel. That means they get higher quality product. Also get the advantage of a trade down that may be coming from that middle end consumer, not necessarily high end, but the middle end trading down. So we think there is still a demand to be had, um, but within the retail space, that's our preferred area of exposure because we agree that with higher oil prices and gas prices, that, that filters into the consumer. Also, consumers really spent significantly on services and experiences this year. So it's a question of, you know, do they flip back and spend more on goods again, or do they take right. a pause <laughs> because they've really overspent uh, during this environment that we've been in. Shannon, what's your thought on consumer products? Well, we have a big number today, 46% of U.S. consumers with student debt. They plan to cut back on spending on sneakers right now. What's your take on Nike? What's your take on the broader retail sector? Well, I think Nike is indicative of of some of the transformation that's going to have to happen in this third phase of of consumer demand in the post-pandemic era, right? We had the, you know, a lot of the good spending that happened and then we shifted to services. And now what you're seeing in reports out of retailers over the course of the last several weeks is that there's a mismatch in terms of the goods that are on the shelves and what consumers are potentially looking for. Now, that may be indicative of an overall slowing of consumer spending, or it may just be that retailers are not yet in tune with this third phase of pandemic spending. I think as it relates to Nike, Nike has been attempting to shift their business from relying on um, secondary retailers and intermediaries to direct-to-consumer. And I think that that shift is going to become increasingly more important as they're able to manage inventory and manage that consumer desire and demand better in the DTC space. So I think that if you're looking at this in terms of what can Nike say to potentially um, get you know, some enthusiasm around the stock, I think it would be around what they plan to do to expand that and rely less on the intermediaries that they work with now. All right. Nike higher right now, but down double digits month to date. All right, coming up straight ahead from Delivering Alpha, real estate reality, our Morgan Brennan sitting down with Blackstone's global co-head of real estate to talk the state of that sector as the rates continue to march higher. Halftime, we'll be back right after this. Welcome back to halftime. As you can see, uh, stocks are at session highs right now. But right now, we're going to talk REITs, one of the worst performing S&P sectors this year, as concerns matter over the health of commercial real estate. For more on what lies ahead in this space, let's get out to our Morgan Brennan, live at Delivering Alpha with Blackstone's global co-head of real estate, Kathleen McCarthy. Morgan, over to you. Frank, thanks. And Kathleen, we just got off stage. It's, it's great to have you here. I'm going to start with the same question that we just started with on the panel, and that is there's been a lot of hand-wringing about the state of commercial real estate. Is it warranted? Well, the state of commercial real estate is not one thing. Different sectors are traveling at different speeds, and our job as investors is to put our clients into the sectors that have the best performance. So if you think about the best performing sector is a high conviction for us data centers. What we're seeing is an explosion of demand because this is built on more content creation, more uh, commerce happening over the internet, and then of course now all of the demands for AI. We bought a company called QTS a couple of years ago. In just the last year alone, we've done more leasing of space to our tenants than in the company's first 15 years combined. And we have line of sight to the company being six times bigger than we bought it. It was a $10 billion take private. And that is just because more of our life, more of the world is happening over the internet, the digitalization driving demand for that asset class. On the other end of the spectrum, of course, is traditional office, 
well, well-worn subject, but you know, obsolescence of those buildings and now, of course, the weight of higher capital costs um, is having an impact. But across the spectrum, you have different things traveling at different speeds. Yeah, and, and Blackstone is the largest real estate investor, not only in the U.S., but in the world. Yeah. So you certainly have your, your finger on the pulse of some of these different subsectors. You exited office before we even had the pandemic. Uh, why did you do that? And when you start talking about secular growth stories and things like data center, uh, why is that compelling now, even in a higher rate environment? Well, we invest thematically and we try to look at the world and what's happening and say, okay, which are the asset classes that are benefiting from tre trends and changes in how people are working and living and shopping and traveling? And on the flip side, we tried to pivot away from more challenged asset classes. And when you think about traditional U.S. office buildings, um, that story is also you know, about who we are. We look very carefully at all of our data. We have $600 billion of real estate, a heritage of studying what's happening in our portfolio to try to inform our next decisions. And what we saw happening was lower cash flow growth, high CapEx costs, uh, and really a share shift to the newest, best office buildings. And so we felt like we wanted to be in asset classes with strong cash flow growth and short duration leases because we wanted to be positioned in the right sectors and with the ability to grow cash flows in what might be a higher rate environment. And we're living that now. Um, you can think about real estate like any other asset class. If your multiples are not expanding, or in our world, if our, cash, if our cap rates are not coming down, we need cash flow growth in order to drive value for our customers. And 50% of our portfolio today are in those best weather sectors, logistics, data centers, student housing, where we see strong cash flow growth, and that is helping us deliver continued great performance despite higher rates. Okay, so you just you raised a record $30 billion, $30 billion for your latest real, real estate fund earlier this year. Are you already deploying that capital, or are you waiting for values to become more attractive here? Well, there's never an all-clear signal, and we've been investing in real estate for 30 years. Um, we know that we always want to be looking for opportunities, but the $30 billion we raised last year um, is something where we're going to be patient and make sure we're finding the best opportunities. This year, a lot of our activity has really been focused on Europe, where we've seen, I'd say, the most negative sentiment around real estate, around the market environment, translating into opportunities for us to take private companies, to buy assets from sellers looking to delever, buy assets from sellers who are forced to liquidate. And we're doing that, though, of course, still in our highest conviction themes. 50% of our activity this year to date has been in, in logistics because we still see continued growth, high leasing spreads, very low frictional levels of vacancy. And, and we see those assets as, as you know, interesting in our ability to create fundamental value in what is a dislocated environment. Okay, Kathleen McCarthy, Blackstone Global Co-Head of Real Estate. Thanks for joining me here at Delivering Alpha. Frank, I'll send it back over to you. All right, Morgan, thank you very much. Also, I'll be heading over to Delivering Alpha for a panel at 345 Eastern talking Alpha Alternatives with Les Bruin of, Al of Aerial Alternatives and Jenny Johnson of Franklin Templeton. It's going to be a lively one. I can't even get it out all the way. It's going to be a great one. Plus, you don't want to miss Scott Wapner's interviews with Altimeter's Brett Gerstner and Pershing Square's Bill Ackman. For full details, go to cnbcevents.com slash Delivering Alpha. All right, coming up here on Halftime, one committee member is making a big move in the banks while they're trimming one of their positions. We're going to break it all the way down. Coming up next.
right, welcome back to halftime. Bank stocks are catching a bid today, but the group remains under pressure with the KBE ETF that tracks the space on pace for its second straight month of declines. Weiss, you're making another move. You're trimming another one of your bank positions this time. I did. So uh, if you recall, Goldman, I added to Goldman in, you know, in front of the IPOs, in front of ARM, in front of Instacart. So super size position, so to speak, taking advantage of. And the stock was trading uh, actually lower than where it is right now. So I thought it'd be a good trade. So Goldman's still a position, but after ARM, after what we've seen in the market since then, and particularly after Instacart, which didn't go as well as was thought, I thought that, let me take that part of the trade off, still being Goldman, but the trade aspect of it is over. I do like the opportunity set going forward, particularly if you really see a steepening of the yield curve into Brin's point. You can cherry pick part of the yield curve, you're seeing that, but not broadly. That's good for banks, but we're not there yet. So, and I also don't believe, given the market action, today's not indicative of what I think the market action will be. Mm-hmm. I don't think that IPO market opens up. And I don't believe that the MA market continues, as I've discussed before. I think it continues to be paltry at best. So it's a trim, not a sell? It's not a sell. I'm okay. still there. Brent, I'm going to come over to you. You own Goldman Sachs as well. Do you share Steve's concerns about the IPO market and the potential for an actual lack of MA in the fourth quarter? Yeah, I think that those three IPOs that came out were a little appetizer for all of the other IPOs, and I think all three of them are trading below below that price. And so for the VCs, those late-stage VCs that wanted to come out, I think that they may go back into hiding because, you know, ultimately you want to see some follow-through on those names, and you haven't seen that. I think that higher rate story, just from a sentiment perspective, makes that tougher. But listen, ultimately, great companies don't care about the yield curve, okay? This is like a short-term issue that will ultimately get resolved, but those companies just have to be better and better in order to be able to become public. All right, Brenda, over to you. You own uh, J.P. Morgan and BlackRock. Concerned about rates in the financials? When we look at the landscape of where we can invest money, you know, the banks, in our view, are they're just, it, it seems like a harder story, <laughs> especially with the yield curve that's inverted. As we talked about, you know, potentially, you know, lack of, of demand for capital and loans at these current levels, um, and then capital markets, which were showing some signs of life, but now it's, it's uncertain whether there's going to be follow through here in the fourth quarter. Uh, right. So for those reasons, we're happy to stick with the JP Morgan, which we think is really the, the highest quality name in the okay. group. Um, and a BlackRock, which we think benefits from flows, you know, potentially going into fixed income, especially. As we said, banks moving higher today. Uh, Coming up, we got final trades from the committee right here on Halftime. Stay with us. All right, we're back. Join me tomorrow on Worldwide Exchange for an exclusive interview with SAP CEO Christian Klein. We're going to talk AI, cloud, and a whole lot more. It all starts at 5 a.m. Eastern now. Here on halftime, time for final trades. Bryn, coming over to you. You're first. Yeah, POCT. It's an innovator ETF that gives you some guardrails on the S&P. You get, if you have a one-year time horizon from October to October, a 15% hard downside protection with about 15% upside. So that takes you about 490 on the upside of SPY down to 365 protection if we were to go there this time next year. Weiss? I'm going with the 10-year. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the yield that you're getting there where you sit and wait and see how this plays out. And it's tax advantage as well. All right, Brenda. With Abbott Labs, you've got to look beyond the impact of COVID tests at the underlying business, which is a great organic growth story, growing double digits and really benefiting from uh, their uh, franchise within diabetes. Shannon. 
REITs. Uh, we talked about them earlier in the show, but we think that a lot of the delinquencies are going to be ring fenced to office, and with data centers, cell towers, single family rentals, there's a lot of diversification within that universe. All right, that's going to do it for halftime. Big day here at CNBC delivering alpha, but the exchange starts right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. We could try to explain what it feels like to get your work done on a John Deere, the way a Z-Track mower finishes in half the time you thought it would, or how much easier it is to move mountains of soil with a 1-Series tractor. We could even go into detail about how it feels to tow up to 4,000 pounds behind a Gator XUV. But if you really want to know what it's like to run with us, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.